Please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. As I continue uh, part two of this series of random texts, Michael wants to preach from the book of Luke. We were in Luke 3 last week, and now Luke 10. We're going to be looking this morning at the kind of parable, what's often called the Good Samaritan. And I know for many of you, this is something probably very familiar. Even if you've not grown up in the church, you've often heard this language discussed, the Samaritan and the Good Samaritan. Be a Good Samaritan. Um, But I want to pray today that as we enter into this text, that we would see it afresh and see that perhaps it's not quite what we thought it was, but that God has something unique he wants to speak to us today. So would you please stand with me out of respect for the authority of God himself as he speaks to us through his word. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer now, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father Almighty, Lord of creation, we gather together as the people of God this morning before you. Grant that your Holy Spirit would, would just clear our minds to hear the voice of your Son, who is the Word himself. Father, we pray for all our kids, that you would open their hearts to the preaching of your Word too. And we pray for all of us, that we would submit to what you teach your church today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. May be seated. As we begin this passage and looking at how this, this question launches off as the 
lawyer stands up, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You should know that there is never, there is never an innocent question in the Gospels. (laughs) In an honor-shame culture like the world of Jesus, every question like this is a test. When the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's not looking for the four spiritual laws. He's not asking about how to get to heaven and earn his salvation. His aim is to show that the way of Jesus, that is what Jesus was teaching and how Jesus was calling his people to follow him, he was trying to show that this way that Jesus is painting is suspect. But Jesus then, as we see in the text, turns right back on him and, and kind of hits back when he says in verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Suddenly, the lawyer now is on the defense. <laughs> and so he gives kind of the appropriate creed about loving God and loving neighbor. And, and Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There's, there's kind of a, a subtle critique here that, that clearly makes the lawyer uncomfortable and, and might make us uncomfortable too. Rather than the lawyer judging what is correct, Jesus is the one who issues the verdict here. And not only that, he implies that the, that the lawyer might need some instruction and how to live in the ways of God. He, he might be able to recite the right doctrine and the right creeds as he gives here. But Jesus is subtly asking, does the lawyer know how to rightly apply these things and actually act on it? In some respects, Jesus is tacitly saying to the lawyer and to us, you, you say these things rightly, but do you, do you really believe what you say? Instead of the lawyer trapping Jesus, Jesus kind of pivots and, and zaps him back. But the lawyer's not done. <laughs> He's not going to leave shamed like this, is he? This is what it means in verse 29 when the ESV reads, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus. This language, desiring to justify himself, this is not language about the lawyer wanting to earn his salvation. That's that's the wrong path to take for interpreting this, and it's led many astray. This this phrase just, just means that the lawyer wants to win. He wants to win. He just got put in his place by Jesus, and now he wants to hit back and and leave Jesus shamed. So he retorts, looking at Jesus, and I imagine kind of like a little sneer on his face. And who is my neighbor? See, when he asks this, this is a far more dangerous question than we may realize. He's not asking who lives next to him or who's kind of in his local town or who should he be nice to. 
At the root of his question, who is my neighbor, is this question. Who are the people who are on the path of God? Who are those people, Jesus? Who should I accept and treat as an equal on God's path? How do, or in other words, how do I identify who belongs to God? That's who is my neighbor. In asking this, he assumes here that that he's the one who's on the path of God and that it's okay to relate differently to those who are not on the path of God. In fact, he should shame them, is his thinking. He also is, again, trying to shame Jesus as a fraud who's, who's kind of confused about who's on God's side. After all, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has defied these categories many times already. In chapter 5, uh, many of these accounts I'm sure you may be familiar with. Jesus in chapter 5, he, he reaches out and he touches a leper. A leper. He's not on the side that he should be on. In chapter 5, also, he goes to the home of Levi, who's a tax collector, and he eats with him. And in that event, you have the religious leaders grumbling in chapter 5, basically saying, what? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're not on the path of God. And then in chapter 6, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, no less. And in the same chapter, he then teaches people about loving their enemies, those who oppose them, those who are pagans, those who are not part of the people of God. By this point in the kind of narrative of the gospel, you know, the leaders are beginning to wonder, I don't think Jesus knows who the people of God are. Then chapter 7, Jesus heals the servant of a Roman centurion. What? A Roman? Don't you know, Jesus, who's against us? He heals a Roman servant, servant and then... He goes and raises the son of a widow. And then chapter 7 ends, to cap all of this off, ends by Jesus reaching out and forgiving the sins of a wayward woman. That I can't even describe here in front of you what that meant. Jesus is going against the grain, to put it mildly. So the lawyer thinks he has Jesus caught in the bullseye when he asks, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus will have to cave now and and take his pile of shame. So the lawyer thinks. But Jesus instead replies with a story. (laughs) And when in the Gospels, whenever Jesus replies with a story, Get ready. You could just see the disciples in there going, oh, no, not again. (laughs) He's about to turn things upside down for this lawyer and for those around him. So let's look at that. What does he tell? Verse 30, he begins, Jesus replied, a man, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is difficult, even even today. It, It winds around through the Judean wilderness, the same place that I referred to last week in Jesus' temptations. See, that's the that what makes the sermon a part two, connecting those. This, this is a horrible place, as I said last week. It's hot. It's dry. It's isolated. Lonely. A great place for bandits. So this unidentified man is ambushed and left for dead. And then as Jesus continues, a priest come by, walks down the road, looks and he sees this man over there and he crosses to the other side. And then a Levite comes, Jesus says, and he's walking down the road and he looks and he sees and he too crosses to the other side. Why? Why do both of these men cross to the other side in this moment? There there are probably a lot of answers to this why. One frequently pointed out is the issue of purity. Engaging with a possibly dead man could compromise their purity, which in turn, what's really almost the real issue behind that is in turn, this would shame them upon returning to the community as they would have to then go isolate and they have to go through the process of purification. But I'm not so sure that simply the issue of purity is the issue here. For sure, purity is involved. But there's something here that we overlook in this text. Every person in this story is identified except for one person. Who? The man. You have priests, you have Levite, and later we get the Samaritan. But the man is not identified. The man beaten up. Often people will say, well, well, he, he's a Jew, of course. He's a Jew. It's kind of just taken for granted. He's a Jew. But we don't know that. The text doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to demonstrate this. First, he does not give him this ethnic identity. He just says, a man went down. Then he notes that the man was stripped That's the first thing that happens. The man was stripped and beaten up. In the ancient world, your ethnicity was identified primarily one way, through garments. Think of, uh, just as an example for you, Numbers Numbers chapter 15. At the very end of Numbers 15, there's this kind of odd text in which God describes people needing to wear tassels. These are identifying marks. All throughout the ancient world, different ethnicities wore their own kind of unique clothes that identified who they were. Now, without any garments, the priest and the Levite cannot identify who this man is. Is he a Jew? Is he Roman? Is he Greek? Is he maybe Egyptian? We don't know. And neither did they. And that's the point. That's the point here. It was 
risky for them to compromise their purity, especially if they did not know whether he was a Jew or someone outside of the Jewish people, someone on the other team, perhaps. The issue here is risk. It was too risky to engage with this unidentified man and help him. So they leave him to die. They walk on while his life kind of slowly ebbed away in the middle of a hot, rocky wilderness. But the story does not end here, does it? A priest goes by. And a Levite goes by. And in a story like, like this, most of those listening to Jesus would expect a third person to come by. In the Old Testament and in kind of the Jewish writings of the time around Jesus, it was common to speak in terms of threes. A priest, they would say, a Levite, and then a Judean layman. These three were very common as a kind of a threesome in literature at the time. It's akin to us kind of saying something like the executive branch, the legislative branch, and then the what? The judicial branch. Don't leave me hanging. (laughs) But Jesus here, he breaks the pattern, and it stuns the audience. You have to realize how stunned they are by this. In verse 33, after, well, I'll back up to verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And then verse 33, but a Samaritan, what? Who, who let him into the story? As soon as Jesus says the word Samaritan, the, the temperature around him just kind of immediately rises up even probably for the disciples and for the early readers of the Gospel of Luke. Because after all, just just in the previous chapter, if you flip back, just in chapter 9, you have this account in which the Samaritans come up and they reject Jesus. Verse 51 in chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a great text itself. It's like got the sons of Thor coming through. Uh This is all playing out. And as Jesus tells this story, he gets to the word Samaritan. The disciples, that's what they're thinking about. This is is the people who just rejected us, who just kicked us out, Jesus. What are you bringing him into the story? So we don't expect the Samaritans to show up here. You only expect it because you've heard this story so many times. But everyone standing around Jesus is... Is caught off guard here. And, and they're thinking, what, what, what is he doing in here? It, it, they might be thinking as they're thinking through this, man, you know, the Samaritan, maybe, maybe he's, oh, I know. I bet he's the ringleader of the bandits and he has come back to finish things. Or, or maybe he's, he's just this guy, he's walking up to this guy and when he sees him, because the pattern is they see him and then something happens. They're going to expect, when he sees him, he's just going to pull out his sword and 
finish off that guy. Because Jews believed that's what Samaritans do. I could almost imagine Jesus kind of putting up his hands and, and, and yelling, this is my story, it's not yours, let me finish. The Jews detested Samaritans. They were akin to being, oh, mudbloods, almost, <laughs> almost half humans. They were at odds, both in religion and in politics with the Jews. They had an entirely different vision of how the world should work and what it should look like. So Jesus continues. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he passed to the other side. No. When he saw him, he had compassion. You could just imagine them just kind of being like, you could hear a pin drop as that word is spoken. You know, Samaritans too had all the same risks. He, he the Samaritan, he, he didn't know the ethnic identity of this man. For all he knew, he might be helping out a Roman or a Greek, uh, people that, that Samaritans didn't like either. Or, or maybe, maybe the man was a Jew. There was that ancient rivalry to consider. He could compromise his own purity and receive shame. Or, or what, if, what if the Samaritan tried to help and, and, and someone saw him standing over the man and then accused him of being the one who did it? You know this is going through the mind. Risk and, and potential shame just kind of overshadow this moment as Jesus is speaking this. And yet somehow the Samaritan pushes through and lets compassion trump the risk. And so you know the rest of the story. He embraces risk, and it costs him quite a bit, doesn't it? He cleans the man up. He puts him on his own donkey and takes him to an inn. Who knows how far that was, the journey through this. He takes care of him, and, and the money just, just flows from him. <laughs> the men listening to Jesus at this point are, are probably just staring with mouths wide open as Jesus tells this. The lawyer at this point is probably sweating buckets at the moment. Because when Jesus finishes, he turns and he asks them in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three? What I wonder is how long did it take for him to answer? Notice Jesus has kind of reframed the question too. Even in doing this, he has kind of the upper hand now over the shameful lawyer. No longer is it what the lawyer asked when he said, who is my neighbor, Jesus? But now Jesus reframes it and turns it back at him and says, who is being a neighbor? Do you see the difference? 
Who is my neighbor? Who is being a neighbor? So then the lawyer speaks, right? In verse 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. The one, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus then lands kind of the final punch out when he says, you go and do likewise. And these words should be ringing in our ears too. Jesus shows the lawyer in us that key to being on the path of God, key to demonstrating that you are in fact part of his kingdom is to then manifest his kingdom to others. It's, it's to be a neighbor, one who takes the risk to image God to others despite the cost. Note the language of compassion in verse 33 and then mercy in verse 37. These are like wrecking balls in the story. For, for everyone who's standing there knew that these two words could only truly be identified with one person, the God of Israel. And Jesus is saying that the true neighbor, the one who is most like the God of Israel in this, sense, in this situation, was none other than the Samaritan. And in the midst of a very, very politicized and polarized first century culture, the, the Samaritan alone takes the risk of embarrassing himself, defrauding himself, being misunderstood, being wrongly accused, receiving great shame, risking his own sanctity, all to be a neighbor in a very risky, uncomfortable situation. And Jesus says, this is the one, this is the one who embodies the path of God for his followers. He tells the lawyer that if he wants to embody Torah, if he wants to love his God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and strength, then he needs to become such a risk-taking, shame-accepting neighbor to all without limit. That's how one images God, according to Jesus here. And it's, it's startling, isn't it? You know, the parables and, and stories that Jesus tells in the gospel are never meant to be cozy and warm and fuzzy. They're always, always meant to step on your toes. This would not be preached faithfully if it wasn't stepping on your toes. Jesus tells these stories in the Gospels to show Israel how to embody God's ways. And this is no less true for this one. They're, they're meant to, for us to leave pondering and, and kind of scratching our head, wondering, how do I fit in this? And, and in this case, kind of asking, am, am, I, am I this kind of risk taking neighbor to others on behalf of God's ways? Or is ECC that? 
We are at a, a, a critical time in our culture. It's no secret that our world is increasingly polarized and politicized, is it? And the problem is that the same culture has infiltrated the people of God, the church. This is exactly the setting that the story of the Samaritan was meant for. It's it's going to be up to the followers of Jesus to take risks to break through these divides. It's going to be up to the followers of Jesus to show compassion, God's compassion, to those who are on either side of the fences that we have put up. The church, Jesus is saying, must not only espouse the right doctrines, but must deliver the right living, such as being the neighbor to the world around us. And it's going to be risky. You will be misunderstood. You will be perhaps even slandered. And it's not going to come just from the other side, but our side. And that's the risk of being a neighbor, Jesus shows us. You know, what what prevents us from engaging with the broken world is in many ways the, the same things that prevented the priest and the Levite. We have become so used to kind of just drawing up the boundaries of who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, and we're over here and they're over there. And, and sometimes we're even standing rightly on, on good doctrine, but, but we wrongly use it to shame those on the outside. That's what the priests and Levite were doing. But what Jesus is showing us is that it is by embodying being a neighbor, that is the very image of God, that we invite those on the outside to experience the orderly world of God on the inside. Instead of of preserving our, our own sanctity, We go to the outside and help restore another's sanctity. And this is risky. This is risky. But but God calls the people of God to a risky vocation. So where do you start? Where do we start? This could go like a thousand directions right now. You, You begin by asking yourself, what walls have you erected between yourself and others? Perhaps in here, perhaps out there. What walls have have ECC accidentally created? The way of God, the embodiment of the gospel, is to tear these walls down and to have compassion for others on the other side. Maybe, maybe it means um, stopping yourself from, from looking down on political opponents, you know, kind of dropping those, those comments that are meant to, to sting the other side, whether it's on social media or on a Sunday afternoon in the lobby. 
Or maybe it means cultivating honest friendships with those who have ideological differences from you. And we cultivate these things not not because of some kind of pseudo-secular diversity commitment. We cultivate these because we bear the image of God to the world. How, How else are they going to see God but through his people? How else? The the secular world around us desperately needs the church, desperately needs the people of God to take risks. If we, like the priest and the Levite, see kind of see the half-dead bodies on the road, and we keep crossing to the other side, Jesus says, all we've done is taught the world that what the church professes and teaches, it doesn't actually believe. I recently heard a pastor and author in Great Britain by the name of Sam Albury. Um, he, he was speaking, and, and I don't even remember what the topic was, to be honest, <laughs> But at one point, he just made this comment that he said that, that the world needs Christians right now who don't just get irritated and angry with the changing world, but rather what the world needs, he said, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing, but he said that the world needs are Christians who are, who are filled with compassion and mercy for those who are caught in the crushing and grinding gears of that changing world. This this is how God has entered into the world to rescue his people. And just as Jesus said to, to this lawyer at the end of this text, he says to us, you go and do likewise. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, when your son speaks words like this, it can be unsettling. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would direct each of us to discover how we can better image you to this changing world, how we can better present the mercies and compassions and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who are around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Help us, Lord. Amen.